So when we last left in our study in the Gospel of John, Jesus had entered Jerusalem. It's Passover week. This is the Passover that he will, uh, he'll, he will lay down his life. The Lamb of God will be sacrificed, uh, will be given in sacrifice. And, uh, and so we're going to pick the story up. By the way, John, I mentioned this last week, you know, from this point forward, John just, it's this final week in the life of Jesus Christ, his public ministry here on earth. It's his final week leading up to the cross. And John really slows the pace. So from chapters 12 through 20, what is that? Nine chapters to cover just this, these few days. So we just want to take our time. Pick it up in verse 20, John chapter 12, verse 20. <coughs> Excuse me. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May God, may God bless really the reading, the hearing, the speaking, the receiving, the applying of his word. One of the things, uh, of the things, we value in this world one thing stands above them all. It is far, far, far more valuable than money or material possessions, however few or many a person may have, however rare or common our stuff may be. In, in fact, this one thing is common to us all. It is common. And yet we each receive only one, making it extremely precious and valuable. The most valuable thing you can offer, it is life, your life. Life is a gift like no other. We inherently know this because we try very hard to protect and preserve life. Uh, we talk about lifeboats and life belts and lifelines, even life insurance. A bit misleading because it only pays off at death. We strive to extend our lives and improve our quality of life. 
when tragedy strikes, we don't care about houses or buildings or cars or fine jewelry. They may have value, but what we really care about is life. I'm saying when the rubber hits the road, when tragedy strikes and suddenly you have this moment of instant clarity, what you care about in that moment is life. So when news reports begin coming in about the attacks on Paris, we didn't care about material things. What we really cared about were the lives of those people, lives that were lost, lives that were wounded and injured, lives that were grieving and forever affected. In John 12, we read of Jesus as He entered Jerusalem for the purpose of giving His life in sacrifice for others. Last week, we considered the fact that He is our Savior King, our Servant King, and our Sovereign King who reigns over all things. And we talked about what His kingship means for life. Life now in this world and everlasting life with God. Because Christ is King, we said, I can rest in His plan for me. Because Christ is King, I can rest in His plan for me. Whatever my, whatever my past, I need not live in, in despair or regret any longer. Whatever my present, I need not face it alone. Whatever my future, I need not fight it or fear it, or fix it, I simply need to trust in Christ, my King. And that's what the triumphal entry signals. It's not just that people hailed Him as King. Jesus knew these very same people would turn against Him within days. So it wasn't about them and their grand welcome, but about Him and who He is and the eternal victory He would soon achieve. Today's text, which we just read in 20 through 26, speaks about this victory, about the hour of Christ's glorification. Now, this hour, as he calls it, is the key. I suggest it's the key to life. This hour of his glorification, the key to life. It begins with him and his life and the laying down of his life, then the new life he produces in others. It's how we properly understand life, life now and life later when death in this world comes our way. Jesus gives us life because he gave his away. And as followers of Christ, hear this, he calls us to do the same. Jesus gives us life because He gave His away. And as followers of Christ, He calls us to do the same. So I want to take it in two parts. I want, I'm going to look at what I call a common request. It's verses 20 through 22 and then a clear reply, 23 through 26. A common request and a clear reply. 
the circumstances are such that at least a day has passed since the Lord's triumphal entry. At least one day sits between verses 19 and 20. We know from the other three Gospels that after Jesus came into Jerusalem, He entered the temple, saw all the buying and selling that was taking place in the temple, and angrily drove out all the merchandisers who were profiting on the Passover crowds. This took place, this cleansing of the temple, this took place in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, so it's probable that the Greeks of verse 20 were there. They had seen Jesus interact with the people and the way in which He challenged the Jewish authorities. They had come to worship and were no doubt intrigued by and drawn to Christ. Note, as a quick aside, note that both Jews and now Gentiles were coming to Him. So the Pharisees' assessment in verse 19 was proving true. Indeed, the whole world was going after him. And perhaps the reason they approached Philip first was because Philip was from Bethsaida, a town in Galilee located near a Greek area known as Syrophoenicia. You may recall the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 who came to Jesus and asked Jesus to heal her daughter, Jesus initially rebuffed her. But she was persistent. And He came to commend her faith and did for her just as she requested. So there was already at least some interaction between Jesus and the Greeks, and now this particular contingent of Greeks wants to know more. They want to see Jesus. They want to get a meeting with Jesus. They want to have a sit-down with Jesus. We sometimes talk about seekers and being seeker-sensitive. And I think sometimes, because of maybe some misuse or misunderstanding of seeker-sensitivity, we shy away from those terms. I don't think we should entirely. I, I think this is a good example, these Greeks. They had come to worship but like so many others at the feast, their worship was misdirected. It was uninformed. It was incomplete. It seems, doesn't it, that they acknowledge the reality of God and they even seek to honor God. They're there to worship. But they don't quite understand what all that means. They don't really know God, not in the fullest saving sense. They don't really know Christ, but they saw something in Christ and they were curious to know more. I have a friend who came to mind this week as I was just working my way through this passage. We used to work together. We played ball together and we encouraged each other in the Lord. And he came from a Jehovah's Witness background. 
And he just instinctively knew, by God's grace, he just instinctively knew that the Jehovah's Witness way wasn't right. But he wasn't sure what was right. And so he was seeking some answers. He was looking for truth. He knew there was a God and there was a desire within his heart to worship God. There was. It was incomplete. It was uninformed. He'll admit that, just like these Greeks. But one evening, as he tells the story, he looks into the night sky and he is struck by the, just the, the numerous stars and the constellations, by the vastness of the universe. And, and he realized in those moments that some creator brought all this into being. And then he realized, he connected the dots, that if some creator brought all this into being, then, then that same creator brought him into being. And so as he stood looking into heaven, he simply said something like, God... If you are my creator, I want to know you. I want to know the one who created me. God, I want to see. And then within a few days, God brought someone across his path who shared Christ and invited him to church and began to get him, help him to become acclimated in the church, in the scriptures, in prayer. And within a couple of weeks after that, he was saved and born again. Being seeker-sensitive isn't about catering to the unregenerate. It's about understanding where they're coming from and helping to bridge the gap between their situation and Christ. Even helping to bring them to Christ. And I suspect there are people in your walks of life today who are like my friend and like these Greeks, people who instinctively know there's something more to life. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And because that is the case, they know that life is more than what we see on the surface. They know. They know they were created for more, but they don't know what that means. They just don't know what they mean. They, they sense, and they, they may even believe in God in the general sense. They may even acknowledge the person of Christ, but they really don't know who he is or what he's about. So I wonder, I just wonder if, 
If we are like Philip in this passage, like Philip and Andrew, there are people in our lives who want to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. But for whatever reason, most don't approach directly. They go to someone who knows Jesus. They look to them for help. I think you are that someone. We all are. We are the go-between. We don't have all the answers, of course, but we know the one who does. Like the person who shared Christ with my friend and brought him to church, I believe we have a similar role with the people God brings across our paths. And if nothing else, I hope there is more. I think this passage teaches more. But if nothing else, maybe today, maybe right now, you have a name and a face of someone God has brought across your path who is looking to you to see Jesus. And how will you show them and help them. Sir, we wish to see Jesus, they asked. Philip told Andrew, and the two of them brought the the request to, to Christ. Their common request was then met by his clear reply. Time and again, John has made reference to Christ's hour, the hour of his death, the hour of the cross. Everything in John's gospel thus far has hinted at this hour of Christ. But on every occasion, it has been framed in the not yet, as in it was not yet his hour or his hour had not yet come. Now, however, Christ himself announces that his hour has arrived. So his declaration here in verse 23, 23, the declaration is followed by his explanation in verse 24 and then his application in verses 25 and 26. First, his declaration, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This title, the Son of Man, comes from Daniel 7 where the prophet Daniel had a vision of the Messiah, one he called the Son of Man who sat at the right hand of God in divine power and and glory. Jesus picked up on this and used this title throughout his his earthly ministry. It, It was his most preferred title, recorded over 80 times in the Gospels. With this title, Jesus is stressing that he is the one Daniel envisioned and described. He is the one to whom was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. He is the one. Now certainly Jesus had already received a measure of glory. 
Wherever he went, it seems that crowds gathered around him and marveled at him. Many witnessed his, his divine power and the miraculous deeds he was doing. Many came to him with requests and needs that only he could meet. They knew that only he could meet them. Even as he entered Jerusalem on this occasion, the masses flocked to him and they declared his praise. Think about this. When people seek you, when they desire you, when they want to meet you and spend time with you, or even get just a glimpse of you, they are in a sense, in a sense, they are acknowledging your worth. So, for example, when fans flock to a sporting event or a concert or a movie premiere, when the event sells out to a capacity crowd, when people line up outside the venue for hours beforehand, it demonstrates just how much they value whatever or whoever that event is centered around. So there is a certain kind of glory revealed in how people were responding to Christ as these masses were flocking to Him. But that's not the glory he's referring to here. The hour of his glorification points to a specific time and place. Namely, to his death on the cross. And so the question for us maybe is, how then is Christ glorified in death? It's more than the resurrection. It's not that he was defeated on the cross and triumphant at the tomb. It's not that. No, he was triumphant at the cross. It is finished. He proclaimed from the cross as he gave his life in death. It was then, remember, when the temple curtain into the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. It was then, that moment when Jesus died for sins once for all, when full access to God was made available on the cross. Listen, Christ achieved the victory and from the tomb He proved it. The cross and the tomb go together. Death and life, new and eternal life through His death. The death of Christ glorifies Christ in that it leads to life for all who trust in Christ. We know this because Jesus explains Himself in the following verse. In verse 24, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies... It bears much fruit. So he draws upon that which was very familiar to those in an agrarian society by talking about a single grain of wheat producing fruit long past its death. Only when the seed dies, only then will it bear fruit and yield a harvest. The death of a single seed, therefore, brings life to thousands more. That's the principle. 
The death of a single seed brings life to thousands more. Thousands upon thousands. Christ is glorified in death because many will live in and through Him. So the Lord's explanation here in verse 24 is first applied to Himself, meaning that it is only by His death that we will be saved. Listen, the example of Christ doesn't save. It's not enough just to look to Christ for guidance or inspiration. The historicity of Christ doesn't save. Just knowing that Jesus was, even that He was a great person and changed the course of history, that won't do. Even the teaching of Christ doesn't save. It's not enough to just fill our minds with knowledge and doctrine. Instead, we are saved through faith in what He accomplished on the cross. Unless He died, there would be no salvation. But because He died, there is certain salvation. For it is only through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ by which sinners are saved to Christ. The glory, the glory of His death is seen in the lives He saves. Sometimes you've heard me use this phrase that we are trophies of grace. In other words, we've experienced God's salvation. And it is now as if we are, each one of us in our circles of life, as if we are declaring the glory of God by saying, look at what Christ has done. That glorifies the Lord. And then the Lord applies this life through death principle to us all in verses 25 and 26. First verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Two kinds of life are referenced here. Life in the world that's lived for self and life in Christ lived in service to Him. And Jesus uses love-hate language to distinguish between the two. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other, but you cannot love both. Life in the world means loving the world and the ways of the world and preferring the world over Christ. Life in Christ means to love and prefer Him instead. Jesus says that loving life 
in the world means losing life in him. But whoever hates his life in the world will find and keep life in Christ forever. And I take, I take hating life in the world to mean in the world apart from God. It's not that we're to hate life itself. Not even that we're to hate life's blessings, the blessings God gives us in this world. Rather, it's to hate being separated from and opposed to God, to hate living in that state. It's, it's not until we acknowledge our fallenness, our sin, and hate being out of relationship with God. We hate being under His just judgment. Not until then will we truly value Christ and life in Christ that restores us to God. If we feel we have no need of God, then we will never value Him who meets our need and we will lose our lives. I think that's the point Jesus is getting at. I am marching to the cross. The hour has come. I will give my life in death so that others may live through me. I hate sin. I hate what sin has done. I hate that people are bound by sin and the sin-saturated ways of the world. I hate the fact they are lost in sin. But I have come to seek and save the lost. And the way I choose to do it is by giving my life in sacrifice for sinners. He is the grain of wheat that died but bears much fruit even today. And so this applies to us on at least two levels. The first being salvation. Salvation through Christ involves this repentance from sin, involves turning from that which overvalues the world to value Christ instead. To value His life, His death, His resurrection from the dead, to value His service and His sacrifice for you. It's to value Him to such a high degree that you freely place your full trust in Him and in His saving work for you. And this then implies a desire to serve Christ. I just want to make sure you hear that. Being saved to Christ implies serving Christ. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. So we're to identify with Jesus personally. It means that as he leads the course and direction of your life, you follow. It means that, uh, that you yield and you surrender your life in glad service to him. It means accepting his lordship in that He is master and you are His servant. And this master-servant relationship is not the least bit debasing. It does not, to serve Jesus in this way, it does not demean or cheapen you in the slightest. In fact, it is the highest calling imaginable to serve Christ. 
For notice the promise of verse 26, the latter half of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so do you, are you saved? Are you saved to Christ? And do you serve him? Ask yourself, do I prefer and pursue Christ? Am I pursuing life in Christ or life in this world? For if you, like a grain of wheat, will die to yourself, if you will hate your life in this world apart from God to serve and follow Christ, you will find and experience true and eternal life and forever be honored by God. The Greeks had requested to see Jesus, and this was his reply. Why did he respond in this way? What's the connection? It seems there's a connection between, you know, they say we want to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. Hey, some Greeks want to see you. And Jesus stands and declares this truth. Why? It seems there's a connection between seeing Jesus and serving Jesus. And Jesus perhaps is showing us what it means to truly serve him by way of at least two things, to glory in the cross and to give your life away. to glory in the cross. Not just to acknowledge the cross, not just to accept the cross, to glory in the cross. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1 that the, that the, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then it goes on to say that the cross for the Jews is a stumbling block because Judaism is built upon a foundation of works, the whole concept of salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, doesn't jive with their way of keeping the law. To the Gentiles, it says, the cross is folly. The idea of Almighty God dying in the place of lowly sinners makes absolutely no sense to those who pride themselves on knowledge and human intellect. But the cross of Christ is not a sign of weakness, but triumph. It was on the cross where God displayed His Absolute wisdom and power and justice and love. And it is there where the grace and glory of God in Christ is most clearly seen. And so we can say with the Apostle of Paul, far be it from me to boast, to glory, to exult, to rejoice in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which 
The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Glory in the cross, for to glory in the cross is to glorify Christ. And then give your life away. If the world has been crucified to me and, and I to the world, if, if I want to glorify Christ, then I will give my life as He gave His. Now here in America, that may not mean a literal death. Although, obviously, the enemies of the cross seem nearer. And of course, we know that in other parts of the world, Christians die every day because they name the name of Christ. But this principle of dying to self, of losing your life to find it, of sacrificing now for, for eternal return is more than just me and Jesus. It's more than just me. Oh, I've got a great relationship with Jesus. There's me and Jesus it's more than that. It's about me and others too. It's about you and your world of work and school, your world of home and family, your world of church and ministry. It's about how you view other people who exist in those various circles. It's about how you serve Christ by serving them. This life through death paradigm isn't about taking, consuming, what can you do for me? It's about giving. What can I do for you? Eternal fruit bearing doesn't result in your ability to save or preserve your life, but in your willingness to give it away. I read a quote, I don't know, I think I saw it on Facebook, but I can't credit the source, I forget. This girl said, what if we viewed life as just one big mission trip? You know, if you've ever been on a mission trip, you get all amped up to go and serve. What if we viewed life that way? Just one big mission trip. Don't you want your life to count? To, not in a selfish way, but don't you want to leave a meaningful legacy? Don't you want to take those talents that God entrusts to you and multiply them? I don't want to bury it. I want to multiply it. Don't you want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? Don't you want to touch and affect people for God and His kingdom forever? Don't you want to live a fruitful life, a life that seeks the eternal good of others to the glory of God? Don't you want a life like that? Of course you do. So give it away.
glory in the cross and give your life away. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you for our time this morning in your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Would you, will you please continue to impress your truth upon our our minds, our hearts, our souls to the innermost places of our lives. I pray just as I scan the congregation and look into some of these faces, I just pray that if there are any here who are like those Greeks who have come to worship but don't really know who it is they're worshiping, I pray that you will open their eyes to see Jesus. And that they would come to know him in a personal way, that they would be saved from sin and death to, to light and life in Christ. And then for those of us, Lord, who are saved, would you continue to make us more and more, make us to be servants of Christ and to glory and to see our lives and the various circumstances of our lives, to just see it from the perspective of the cross that you are redeeming. You're, you're, you're redeeming all things. And help us to be like to follow in your steps, Jesus, to be like that grain that dies, only to yield and bear much fruit. So we trust you in these things. We entrust our lives to you. For your name's sake, amen.